All right, guys, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Romans chapter 12 this morning. We're continuing our invitation to more series. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 947. We are in the fifth week of the invitation to more series. For my note takers, uh, we are going over to the We Change page of the booklets. And uh, I want to give you a heads up. I'm going to be giving you a, a second diagram today. So make sure you leave a little bit of space at the bottom of that page for that diagram. I know you would be really upset with me if you filled it with words and then I drew a diagram. So giving you a heads up. If you're a first-time guest with us this morning and you don't have a booklet, don't worry. You don't need a booklet. You can take notes on your bulletin uh, if you choose to. And all of our previous sermons are available on the website. So you can get caught up um, and take a look at what this means, this whole invitation to more. All right, for this morning, let's dig in to Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, we've been looking at this model that we call the three G's, right? That, that really is this, this cycle, right? That, that God breaks into our world with grace, right? He loves us, and we have an experience of grace, which then awakens us to this experience of gratitude. And having this awakened experience of gratitude, which is a, a humility and a joy combining in a, in a deep expression of gratitude toward God, that propels us into growth, that actually gives us the energy to move into uh, the challenging stages of growth. And we, we took a look at these, uh, these principles from, from Romans 12.1, right? Because he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? By the mercies of God. God initiates toward us in mercy, right? He, he, he initiates toward us in grace. Grace is what flows to us. When God's justice and God's mercy collide on the cross, right? When Jesus, our substitute and our Savior, goes to the cross and he bears our guilt and he bears our shame, he dies in our place, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserve to die, right? And then out of that flows a never-ending fountain of grace, undeserved, unmerited favor, love, grace, that we don't earn, but has earned, been earned for us. God initiates toward us in love. And, and then Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies. Right? So what he's saying is, consider those mercies. Let your mind rest on that grace, because that's going to become your motivation for change. That is what is going to equip you. Right? God initiates, we respond. God initiates, we respond. God acts, and then he says, have faith. Have faith in who I say I am and what I say I've done, right? Trust in my work for you instead of your work for you. God loves us and then says, I want you to be grateful, right? Be humbled by the gift and take joy in the giver. Now, here's the thing. This is what we unpacked last week. All genuine heart change. All genuine, transformative heart change. We're not just talking about rearranging the furniture of your heart and, and, and learning to have a little more self-discipline and learning how to... I'm talking about actual transformative change. All transformative change comes from this dynamic interaction of God initiating and us responding. The way we are changed is by receiving love, not by performing, not by working, not through diligent self-effort or great plans. We change by being loved. God initiates, we respond. God loves, we respond to that love, and growth is the result. And this dynamic exchange of grace uh, resulting in gratitude, pushing us into growth, this, this, this dynamic exchange of being loved and loving in return, man, that is the power of the gospel in our lives. That is the power of being changed and growing into the blessings of your Christian life. It's the power, as, as Paul calls it, the power of presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to Christ. So this is where we've been going 
for um, really the last four weeks, right? We've been, been presenting um, and toying with this idea, right? How can presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice be an invitation to more, right? Because it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like an increased uh, blessing. It sounds like, uh, man, it just doesn't sound pleasant, does it? I mean, it really doesn't sound fun. Uh, it doesn't sound rejuvenating or refreshing, right, to be a living sacrifice. It sounds like it hurts. And if we were honest, most of us would say, you know what, I already have enough pain and frustration in my life, right? So thanks, God, but no thanks, Right? We're not usually that obvious about it, but, but a lot of times that's what's going on in our heart. We're like, this one just doesn't sound like something I want right now, right? So we pass on God's invitation to more because it sounds like an invitation to less. So I really want us to, to consider what Paul is saying here carefully. I really want us to consider what he is describing. To be a living sacrifice requires two things, right? The first is a choice. Because a living sacrifice has to climb on the altar and choose to stay there. A living sacrifice can crawl off, right? That's kind of the problem, isn't it? If you're a living sacrifice, you can just keep crawling off the altar. It requires a choice, and in fact, it requires an ongoing choice, which means that we need submission. Now, submission is a bad word in our culture. We don't like this word, right? Submission sounds degrading. Submission sounds disempowering. Submission sounds almost abusive, right? In our culture, when you talk about the need to submit, we often equate that with the idea of, of being a victim, right? Um, the problem is that's a misunderstanding of the word, and, and submission's a beautiful word that we need to reclaim. Submission, listen, submission is the exercise of personal authority to align my choices with a greater purpose. Submission is, is an exercise of personal authority. Like, like I choose, I exercise personal authority to align my choices with a greater cause. This is not the same thing as being a victim. Being a victim, man, victims are, are forced to do things in a way that violates their will. Victims have their, their autonomy and their authority removed from them. People make choices for them, and they are powerless to, to comply or not comply. And the challenge is this, you guys. Submission is beautiful. Victimization is horrible. But submission isn't always easy. Right? Think about Jesus. Jesus was no victim. Jesus was no victim. He was a sacrifice. He suffered abuse, no doubt about it. But he was no victim. You know why? Because he was not forced to do anything. He submitted. That's why he could look at Pilate, who, who had the governing authority to either put him on the cross or set him free. And Pilate was like dumbfounded in his conversation with Jesus. He's like, don't you understand how much power I have over you? Shouldn't you like at least be trying, right? Shouldn't you be talking to me? Shouldn't you be trying to persuade me? And Jesus had been silent. And he looks at him and he says, you have no power over me except that which has been granted you by my Father. That's not victimization, that's submission. He aligned his will with a greater cause and a greater purpose. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to submit himself because there was a greater purpose that was being worked that was worth the pain, the discomfort, and even the death, burial, and resurrection he was going to endure right? Even death by crucifixion, right? That's the power of submission. Submission is not weak. Submission is strong. Submission isn't victimization. It is an exercise of powerful personal authority. Submission means I do the hard thing, not, not because I want to, but because I believe something greater than my personal freedom is at stake. It is an authoritative act where we exercise our power to align our will with God's greater will. Now, this would be really, really easy if God only asked us to do what we already wanted to do, right? It's really easy to submit if God's just like, yeah, yeah, you, you know, whatever makes you happy, man. 
right? There's a whole brand of Christian preachers out there that basically preach this. They're called the prosperity uh, gospel preachers. And basically what they teach is God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have more money. He wants you to have a better car. He wants you to have perfect health. He wants you to have all these things. And so really by submitting to him, all you're doing is allowing God to submit to you, right? So you go ahead and submit to God. God's going to submit to you and he's going to give you everything you want. The, the problem is our verse says you're going to be a living sacrifice, To be a living sacrifice means that this is going to intrinsically involve discomfort. And it is in this place of submission in the face of discomfort that we grow. So being a sacrifice isn't a purely pleasant experience, right? That's why we, that's why this doesn't sound like an invitation to more. Sacrifice is not a pleasant word. It doesn't feel good And I'm going to be honest with you. There are going to be times, and and maybe even a lot of times, that it actually feels like death. But that doesn't mean it's bad. Remember, God is a God of grace and mercy and love. His motivation is to bless us. We stand in a position of grace. He is not mean-spirited. He is not capricious. And that means that whatever is dying on this altar needs to die. If you have ever walked with someone you love who has had cancer, you know how important it is that that cancer die. Because if that cancer doesn't die, it will not only reduce the quality of that person's life, it may even take it. There are things in us that need to die because they are blocking us from an experience of life and may even reduce our ability to to see life. God is a surgeon. He is not a butcher. He isn't just chopping away with a cleaver randomly in our lives. He will use the bad stuff that happens. Now listen, bad stuff happens to everybody, doesn't it? I mean, everybody has bad stuff happen in their life, right? God will use the bad stuff in your life, follower of Christ, in a way that redeems the suffering. God will use the bad stuff in a way that that gives purpose to the pain. It will not simply be random pain with no goal. He will redeem the pain in order to change us, in order to free us, in order to grow us. God's promise is that we will never experience a pain that goes unredeemed. He will use it. Now, sometimes He will bring in specific experiences of discomfort into our lives. Sometimes it's very intentional and very surgical. He will will be like, all right, this thing in your life right now, it's time to take it out. This thing right here in your life, it, it's time for that to die. And so sometimes he will surgically bring discomfort into our lives to put to death those parts of us that are keeping us from experiencing life. This is why the, the idea, the concept of submission is so important, you guys. Because we need to submit. Submission flows from love, and it's strengthened by trust which means submission is intrinsically relational. Submission is what occurs in a loving relationship, and that's what fuels its trust. So let me put it another way. Let me put it this way. You're already a living sacrifice. The question isn't whether or not you will be a living sacrifice. The question is, what are you going to sacrifice yourself to? Because if you love, you are a living sacrifice because you sacrifice for what you love. This explains someone who gets up at 3 a.m. to drive their friend to the airport. Who in the world wants to get up at 3 a.m. to drive into the city and drop off their friend? That requires me submitting my will for a greater cause of love. I submit myself and endure the discomfort because I am a living sacrifice to that which I Love. This also explains the parent who gets up at the same exact time, the the sleep-deprived, semi-crazy parent who has to get up to once again comfort their child. They are a living sacrifice. And they are driven to be submissive to the need of another, even though it involves discomfort, because they love, and love always leads to submission. It sadly also explains the parent who skips every meaningful moment in their child's life in the name of getting ahead at work. 
We will sacrifice for what we love. We will submit to discomfort for what we love. The question isn't whether we're going to do it. The question is what altar are we going to do it at? What are we going to be a living sacrifice for? See, we submit ourselves to discomfort for what we love. God is saying, I want that place in your life. I want to be the central, most important source of love. I want to be what you, what you lay down your life for. I want to be the one that you lay down your life to. I, I want to be the center of your love. Because you were created to worship me. And it's only in pouring out your life to God, it's only in pouring out your life as a living sacrifice, in first responding to the love of God, that all the other loves find their alignment in your life. It's only there that that you actually receive the fullness of life for the sacrifice. God wants to give us life, and, and, and He wants to be the source of our life, which means all the secondary loves need to be secondary. You were not designed to worship your family. You were not designed to worship your career. You were not designed to worship achievement or, or, or approval. You were designed to worship God. First and foremost, have your deepest needs met there. So he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Because he wants to set you free. Because you're going to do it somewhere. You're either going to do it at a lesser altar, which will destroy both what you're sacrificing yourself to and rob you of what you're sacrificing yourself for, or you'll do it at the right altar, the altar where, where you're actually pouring yourself out to the source of life, who is actually, for everything you pour out, going to pour more back in. He wants to set you free. So what is God putting to death on the altar. As we come and we submit to the discomfort, well, you remember over the last four weeks, we've talked a lot about this concept of worldliness, right? And in Romans 12, 2, it says, no longer be or don't continue being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Worldliness is, is our way of doing life without God. Worldliness is our way of trying to find from life what only God can give without God giving it, right? It is our way of getting the fullness of life without the God who gives it. Whether the path is moral achievement or sinful pleasure indulgence, we're all desperate for life. We're all trying to experience the fullness of life and because this is the default mode of the human heart, because we're born separate from God, this shapes everything we see about life. It, it shapes how we understand life is supposed to work. It, it shapes how we understand how God works. It shapes how we see ourselves. And as a result, we, we put a lot of effort into building false selves. Selves that we think are worthy of the fullness of life. Selves that we think can actually achieve the fullness of life. We spend a lot of time rearranging the furniture of our behavior and our image so that people see us in a certain way perceive us in a certain way so that we see ourselves in a certain way. We, we take certain parts of ourselves and hide them away so we don't have to see them and push other things forward. And, and this false self, this idealized self, we, we hope is worthy of what we know we're not currently experiencing. Listen, that false self is blocking you from actually meeting God because God can't meet with your false self because there's no honesty there. God can only meet us in honesty. What's he putting to death? He's putting to death your false self. Because it's blocking you from actually meeting God face to face. Right? And, and it's going to feel like death because when he dismantles your false self, you're going to be exposed. There are parts of you that you're trying to desperately keep hidden. They're going to be brought to light. God's going to be like, now we're dealing with it. We're dealing with all of it. We're not going to pretend like it's not there because we need to deal with what's real, what's true. He puts to death our false self. He puts to death our self-salvation projects. 
our plans, our plots to try to get the fullness of life without the blessing of God giving the fullness of life. He's putting to death the things that separate us from Him. So let me show you how this works. Um, Draw a dotted line here. Up. This line represents um, our, our attempted journey from life, which is where we are, to the fullness of life, which is where we want to be. And we often perceive life in this way. It, it is an uphill climb, right? This is how we view growth in life. It's an uphill climb. And, and there's a mathematic formula behind this, right? I look at what I have, and it's not enough. Because even though I have life, I don't have the flourishing of life. I don't have the fullness of life. So what I need is a little more, right? A little more money, a little more comfort, a little more influence, a little more protection, a little more security, a little more fame, a little bit more recognition, a little bit more, a little bit more, right? And the problem is as soon as I get a little bit more, it doesn't give me the flourishing and fullness of life. It just becomes what I have, And so now that that becomes what I have, I need to add a little more. It's a never-ending cycle of what I have needing more, what I have needing more. And what it does is, is the fullness of life then remains unattainable, out of reach at the top of this hill that I can't seem to get to the top of. And so my job is to climb harder, to get higher, Job advancement, recognition, comfort, affirmation, pleasure. And in the church world, we do the same thing. In the church world, it's, it's I just need a little more moral self-control. I, I just need a little bit moral attainment. If I could just be more moral, then I can be more holy, right? And, 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 and if I can just get a little higher up on this hill... I'll be a little closer to God, and when I get a little closer to God, then then I'll experience the fullness of life. Then I'll finally start experiencing all the good things. God will like me a little bit more, and I'll like myself a little bit more, right? If I could just get a little more up this hill. This is reflected in even the language we use to describe someone who, who at one time was had moral self-control, but but now has has kind of those old sin habits have returned. Right? Somebody who was like, man, I have all this self-control, and, and I'm growing, and man, look at me, I'm good. And then all of a sudden, the bad things return, <laughs> like they do. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden, what do we call that? What do we call someone that was like, like morally attaining? and We call it backsliding, don't we? Even the language we use to describe it is shaped by this false paradigm. And what do you do with someone who's backsliding? Well, you're like, dude, get your cleats back on. You need to get back up the hill, right? You need to, to get back to that place where, where you had more self-control, where you had your life more in control, where you had your sin under more control. You need to get your cleats back on. You need to work harder and try better. You need to open up your Bible. You need to read more. You need to, you need to really apply yourself. You, you need to get back up the hill. You guys, we've discussed this in previous weeks. This is a fatally flawed view of spiritual progress. This is not how the gospel works. What I have plus a little more, a little more godliness, a little more self-discipline, a little bit more, a little bit more, what I have plus a little more will never get you to the fullness of life. It is a treadmill of self-effort where you're expending a tremendous amount of energy but you're never getting anywhere. It feels like you are. You know why? Because, because when you get a little bit more, it feels good, doesn't it? So, like, so like you're like, man, I just can't read my Bible every day. I'm just such a loser. And then you find this app that reminds you, and you actually start developing a habit, and you start reading it every day. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, right? You're actually reading the Bible every day. And suddenly you feel like, yes, I am morally improving. Look at me. I'm a better Christian. I feel better about myself already. And, and there's a cathartic release that comes from attaining a little bit. But pretty soon, that little bit more just becomes what you have. And you're still the same person with the same inadequacies and the same frustrations. And, the, and, and, and so it's just a treadmill. And it feels like you're getting somewhere, but you're just expending energy and getting no closer to the fullness of life. It is a treadmill of self-effort. It is a treadmill of self-deception. 
You convince yourself, if I can just put out a little more energy, if I can just get a little bit farther up this hill, if I can just solve this one problem, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, and it puts all the attention where? On me. On what I can do. And what I should do. And what I failed to do. And on this treadmill, I've got shame chasing me back here, and I've got pride tempting me up here. Because if I slide back down there, man, that's shame. And if I can just get up here, man, then I can finally feel good about myself. And it's comparative. I'm constantly looking at, at where I am compared to other people around me to find out if I should feel good about myself. Like, how many people are farther down than me? Yeah, you guys are losers. And how many people are farther up ahead of me? Oh, man, those are the, oh, I could never be like that, right? We get a little jealous and envious. You guys, this is madness. As long as we are on this line, we're on a path that keeps us from life. In order to grow in our relationship with God, we need to die to the worldliness that enslaves us, the ways we try to do life without God in order to give what only God can give. We need to die to our ways of, of, of twisting truth, of convincing ourselves that somehow we just need a little bit more improvement, a little bit more cleaning up, a little bit more self-control. You guys, we need to die. And ironically, what we need to die to are the things that are actually causing our death. The things that are actually keeping us away from experiencing the fullness of God. So what does this look like? How do we do it? Well, the solution isn't more self-effort. The solution is responding to God. The most fundamental problem we have with getting off this line of self-improvement is trust. We trust ourselves more than we trust God. We don't want to let go of our self-focused, self-improvement plans because those are the things that make us important. Those are the things that keep us empowered. Those are the things that make us feel like we have some measure of control in this life. Listen, if we want to grow, if we want to grow, we need to learn how to let go of our ways of defining our worth and trust in God's ways. That the imputed righteousness of Christ, the very righteousness of God given to me as a gift because Jesus died and rose again for me, man, that defines my success. That anchors my approval. That makes me secure. That opens up to me doors of pleasure and love that no amount of other kind of behavior can ever fulfill. That that, that is the way God unleashes his blessing in my life. I need to believe, which means I need to trust. And that means I need to die to what I trust instead of God that's getting in the way of my trust to God. And that means, you guys, i got to jump. This is called the J-curve. And down here is death. This image of the J-curve is, I'm borrowing this from Paul Miller. Paul Miller is an author who wrote... A loving life, a praying life, and, and love walked among us. I recommend all of his, all of his books. Um, this comes from a loving life. But this J-curve represents a very different way of approaching life than this idea of, of improvement, of, of always ascending, of fighting my way up the hill. This is the model of death, burial, and resurrection. It shouldn't surprise us that the path of growth in the Christian life is the path of death, burial, and resurrection. Because isn't that the path Christ took to redeem our lives? He submitted himself to the discomfort of love so that he could become our substitute to redeem us from our sin, to give us a hope that we could never claim on our own, to free us from our guilt and our shame. He died in our place and he rose again. This is how he won us grace, but it is also how he models for us what it means to move toward life. Death precedes resurrection because the things that keep us from life have to die before we can grow in that life. We need to die to our righteousness, our pride, our self-salvation projects. And you guys, I'm just going to be blunt with you. 
At points, this is going to be terrifying. You're going to be up on that line and, and God's going to be telling you to jump and it's going to feel like you're jumping into an abyss. Like, like you're leaving behind what makes you secure. You're leaving behind what makes you important. You're leaving behind what you so hoped would give you life. You guys, we put so much energy into building our false selves to abandon it. It feels like death. I've spent my entire life building this false self. Creating this facade. Pushing out my resume. This image that I want others to believe about me and I desperately want to believe about myself. To to leave that behind. It's going to feel like you're jumping off a cliff into the abyss. But this is not an act of blind faith. We know what's in the abyss. You know why? Because we're dropping into the promises of God. We are taking a step of faith based on God's faithfulness. We have to trust Him more than we trust ourselves. We have to trust Him, a God who is motivated by love, who is defined by truth, who is glorious in His very nature, more than I trust myself. A man who twists the truth to suit my own ends. A man who will deceive others and happily deceive myself if I think it will improve my lot. I need to to trust God more than I trust myself. I need to trust God with my ambition, with my fear, with my sexuality, with my failures, with my successes. Let me explain some ways this plays out. We need to trust God. So this could be uh, applying to a behavior in your life that you know is sinful. A behavior or a pattern of behaviors in your life that, that you know is, is sinful, but, but you haven't wanted to let it go. And I know why you haven't wanted to let it go, because it feels like it might give you life. <laughs> the reason you have that pattern of sinful behavior in your life is because you think, if I keep pursuing this sinful behavior, I'm going to experience more of the fullness of life. I'm going to experience more of the flourishing of life. So you're, you're chasing the sinful behavior, thinking it's going to give you what only God can give, Right? I, I gotta cheat on my taxes. I'll go broke. Right, ignore the fact that God said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He, he should have said, render unto Caesar what it was fair to give to Caesar, right? right? I can't be honest with my boss. I, I can't tell the truth to my spouse. I, 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 can't, I can't be that honest. I, I gotta keep sleeping with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. What, what would happen if I didn't? Not only is that, like, terrifying, but what would they think of me? What what if they left? If I don't keep doing this thing, something bad will happen. And when something bad happens, it's going to feel like death. You need to trust God more than you trust yourself. You've got to trust that the God who, who created life and put rules into life didn't put those rules into life to keep you from experiencing joy. He didn't set up artificial boundaries to tease you. The flourishing of life is on the other side of this fence, but I put you inside the fence. <laughs> Why does God put up boundaries? Because those are the guideposts. God is the one who created the good gift of ambition. God is the good one who created the good gift of sexuality. God is the one who created the good gift of, of performance. And God created these good gifts. And then he says, this is how you're going to get the most out of them. Are you going to trust me or are you going to trust yourself? Right? You've got to trust God. So it could be a behavior that is sinful in your life. It could be a righteousness that you need to walk away from in your life. So I've shared this before. I like to win... Um, you know, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, I like to win, and, and in my family, that was often manifest in the fact that I could get good deals. So my brother and I became very competitive, right? So anytime, and this is to this day, when we're like, hey, I bought, you know, I bought a new car, or I, I bought a mountain bike, or I bought a house, or I, first question, how much you pay? It's a competition, right? Because my brother and I are always like measuring who gets the best deal, Right? And, and there's always this measure of shame if I'm like, well, I paid its full price, right? I mean, there's this sense where I lost when I did that, right? All right, so listen, 
God strategically over the last decade has put me in situations where in order to be obedient, I had to lose. Like I knew it, and I'm not going to explain the details, but I knew it. I knew that in order to be obedient, I had to get the worst end of the deal. And what really hurts is sometimes that was with people I didn't like. Because with people I'm with I like, I can kind of justify it like, well, I like them. I'm just being a blessing to them. I'll pay more than it's worth or more better deal than I could have gotten somewhere else because, you know, I like them. It really hurts when it's somebody I don't like. When, when it's somebody who's driven the same way I am and they feel like they're taking advantage of me, I hate that. When they're walking away going, oh, I got a great deal, I'm like, why would God do that? Why, why would God ask me to lose? Because I had a pride in my righteousness that was blocking me from being dependent on God, taking joy in the gift of God. It was my way of proving myself. It was my way of getting a little more. And every time I, I, I got a great deal, it felt great in the moment, but pretty soon that little bit more just became what I had, and then I had to get the next great deal. God wanted me to get off the treadmill of self-performance. God wanted to get off the treadmill of righteousness. And so he asked me to make some deals that were not great deals. And I had to submit, and I had to make those phone calls to my brother. And that felt like death. How much you pay? More than it was worth? Oh, oh, all right. And then he patronizes. Oh, that's all right. It's all right. Next time you'll do. No, no. I mean, like, like, no, it's, dude, this is what God asked me to do. Oh, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, okay. It feels like death. All right, so here's the thing. I don't know what your righteousness is, but I can help you find it. Just ask yourself, what do I boast in? What do I want people to know about me? What's on my resume when I slide it across the table? When I want people to know about me, what do I want them to know about me? Maybe you're not wired like that. Maybe it is, what do you want to know about yourself? Maybe you're not trying to impress others. Maybe you're just trying to impress yourself. What's your boast to yourself? Where do you build yourself up most in pride and cover yourself most in shame? That's your righteousness. Now be careful, because once you identify it, God's going to kill it. Because it is a treadmill of self-effort. It is a place where you are blocking yourself from a deeper experience with God. How do you, how do you kill your righteousness? You have to trust God more than you trust yourself. You have to trust that his righteousness is better than your righteousness, that his gift of, of the righteousness of God is better than your gift of moral improvement or your gift of success or your gift of a corner office or a, or, or a better-looking car, whatever it is. So it could be that, that you have behaviors that are sinful that you need to repent of. It could be that you have righteousnesses that you need to walk away from. It could also be that you have areas of suffering in your life that you need to learn how to lament instead of pretend. Hurt comes into every single one of our lives. And there are people in this room who have suffered profoundly. And what makes me incredibly sad about myself and others is that we're really, really good about pretending And often, we will hide our sorrow behind good theology. We'll say things like, you know, God is in control. God is awesome. God is good. And those are all true statements. And in fact, they can be helpful statements. It's good theology. But it's not always honest emotionally. While we're trying to live up here in these great theological truths of God's sovereignty and God's control and God's abstract goodness, our hearts are withering and writhing because in the quiet moments, we ask why. Why me? Why now? Why this? And that fills us with a sense of shame. Because we should believe that God is sovereign and God is good. And it fills us with a sense of guilt because we feel like somehow we've betrayed God. Listen to me. If Jesus could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not be a theological traitor? So can we. Lament is the voice of suffering. 
Lament is the voice of pain. Lament is raw. Lament is always or or often theologically not fully accurate. Because in our lament, we may say things that aren't true. But here's the beauty of it. We're actually being honest with God emotionally. And God loves honesty. You know why? Because honesty is rooted in humility, and God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. We're trying to manage our sorrow with our good theology. We're up here on the line thinking, if I can just keep good theology, if I can just keep thinking good things, if I can just keep focused, then I won't feel the bad things. The treadmill of self-effort and self-deception. God wants you to throw yourself into the abyss. So for me, I don't know how this worked for you. I, this is something I have worked, I have had, it's taken me decades, and I'm still working through it. But there was an image that came to me while I was working through this, and I pictured myself, I was trying to explain to somebody what my experience was. I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm like in a skiff, man, and I'm floating on a sea of sadness, and I can't put my toe out of the boat. Because if I touch that, it's going to swallow me. And I will never come back. There's too much darkness, too much sorrow, too much pain. So I got to stay up here. Which is my way of saying I got to stay on the line because that feels like death. And I'll tell you what I have learned is that when I jumped out of the boat, I was swallowed. But I was not swallowed by an abyss of sadness, I was swallowed by love. Because when I went down into the darkness, I found I wasn't alone. There was a Savior who had scars. There was a Savior who knew my pain. There was a Savior who understood the rage of my heart against the mistreatment I had endured. And he found me and comforted me in that place. It wasn't about me managing my sorrow. It wasn't about me staying in my head and away from my heart. It was about me jumping into the abyss. Knowing, man, my theology won't heal the wounds of my heart, but my Savior will. Some of you need to get out of your head and learn to be honest with your feelings. You need to drop off the line and meet, meet God in the darkness because down there in that pit where it feels like death, that's where we find life because we aren't alone. That's the beauty of having a Savior who knows pain. You can't go anywhere he hasn't already been. You can't feel a pain or express an outrage he has not already experienced. We need to stop working and striving and fighting and fixing and controlling. And when we do, man, when we throw ourselves into that place of absolute dependence, we find we are gloriously not alone. We jump in and we land in the sweet promises of a God who is unshakably faithful. And in that place of helplessness, we find that Jesus lifts us up. The one who died for us and rose again for us lifts us into the fullness of life, gives us a taste of the resurrection, a place we could never get on our own, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how much we worked. Because the fullness of life isn't a place we climb to, it's a person. A fullness of life is is not something we attain, it's a relationship. It's being loved by an infinitely loving and gracious God. And in being loved, having our hearts undone, and having our hearts undone, having our courage remade, and having our faith fueled so that we can continue to grow. You guys, the strongest people are the ones who are most dependent on God. Not the ones who have the most money or the most success or the most fame or the most moral achievement. The strongest people are the ones who are most dependent on God because they are actually tasting the flourishing and fullness of life, which no amount of money can buy, no amount of fame can achieve, no amount of security can can anchor you there. So the question keeps coming back around. How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I become this person? How do I grow in this way? How do I do it when I don't trust God enough? What do I do when I don't want to let go of my sin? 
right? We've all been there. Some of us are right now. What do I do when, when my sin, man, it's just got its hook in me, and I, I, if to walk away from it feels like death. I don't want to do it. How do, I, how do I walk away from my righteousness? I put so much effort into building this false self. How do I walk away? What do I do when I, when I just, I don't even know how to trust God with my sorrow. I don't know how. What do I do then? What do I do when I've tried and I've tried and I've tried? And a hundred times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, I've crawled off the altar. I've rejected submission. I've walked away from the gift and gone back to my own, my own plan, my own work, my own worldly vision of how I'm going to attain the fullness of life. When I keep climbing off the altar, when I keep going back to my self-salvation projects, doesn't God ever get sick of me? Doesn't he ever say, man, that was one time too many. I'm done with you. When that voice of condemnation comes in and starts whispering, the, the promises are true, but, but not for you. There's a promise of life, but, but it's not for you. You can be loved, but that love's not for you. Pause. Do you see what you're doing when you're in that mindset? You're back up on the line. And you're, 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 you're condemning yourself for not being farther up than you should be. And you think God rejects you because if you could just get a little higher, somehow he'd like you more. Listen, you don't need to perform better. You need to trust more. And to trust more, you can't make yourself do it. You have to respond to the love of God. All genuine life change happens as a response to the outpouring of God's love, not in our performance for Him, but in a response to His performance for us. To trust more, we need a renewed experience of His love because love provokes trust. You need God's initiating love to provoke a trust response in your heart. You need to run back to grace, run back to the gospel, run back to God where justice was satisfied in mercy and and grace, wave after wave after wave of grace awaits you, undeserved, unmerited love and favor. You need to fill your vision with Jesus, a Savior who loves you and died for you and rose again for you and now just wants to love you. You need to fill your vision with the gift of God's righteousness and the price he paid to give it to you until your heart is humbled by the gift and your joy is renewed at the giver. And you have the experience, renewed experience of gratitude. And and this gratitude, man, it strengthens your faith. And it renews your experience of being loved. Listen, the enemy can't whisper his, his condemnation in your ear if your hearing is filled with a Savior who's telling you he loves you. You can't be condemned by the enemy. While Jesus is saying, you're covered in my righteousness. You are are my beloved. You are mine. Condemnation comes from being up on the line. If I were just a little higher, if I were just a little better. Joy comes from knowing God doesn't ask me to perform. He just asks me to respond. You guys, every believer will get to a point. If you haven't yet, you will. Every believer gets to a point (laughs) where they are like desperately frustrated with themselves. Where you get to a point where you're like, I can't do this. I'm hopeless. I'm doing my best here. And I, maybe it's not for me. If you could see your father's face in that moment, you would see a smile. You know why? Because you know what he's saying in that moment? You're just starting to get it. You're just starting to get it. You're helpless. You're weak. That's why you need me. Keep throwing yourself on my love. Keep throwing yourself in my grace. Keep throwing yourself at the foot of the cross. Keep jumping off the line. Keep filling your vision with a God who loves you so profoundly. 
Because it's in being loved that you will be changed. And as you change, you won't take any pride in your accomplishment. You will actually become a different person. You will become more moral. You will become more like Jesus. But there won't be any pride in it because it's rooted in humility. And when you fall short, you're not going to be crushed by the shame because you know, I can't do it anyway. That's why Jesus died and rose again. Fill your vision with grace. Renew your experience of gratitude. And then throw yourself Throw yourself into the discomfort of submission. Willfully submit your will to the greater will. Choose to trust God even when your heart tells you that it's going to be like death. When you have to walk away from that sin, when you have to walk away from that righteousness, when when you have to to open up the the valves of, of your sorrow. Trust God more than you trust yourself. The only way you can get there is if you fill your vision with how good and gracious and loving God is. Because it's in being loved, your faith will be strengthened. And in your faith being strengthened, you will find a level of trust you never knew you could have. And in finding that level of trust, you will step into the discomfort with a boldness you never knew you could do. And you will be changed. You guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Next week, we're going to be looking specifically at how this growth cycle results in an increase of generosity. Today, we focused on this idea of obedience, submission. Next week, we're going to talk about this idea of generosity and how powerfully that can work both to strengthen our faith but as an expression of our faith. We'll look at that next week. Let me, um, let me pray for us, and we'll go into our time of response. We'll share communion in a moment, but that'll be introduced in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Lord, we thank you that the greatest gift you've given us is yourself. That you submitted yourself to us in love is one of the most profound mysteries of the universe. A holy God would not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but instead emptied himself to take the form of a servant. And being obedient and submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be bought back, that we might be redeemed, that we might be set free. How could we not submit to a love like that? How could we not want to be loved like that? How could we not want your plan for our lives instead of ours? How could we not want that comfort to balm our wounds? How could we ever think your presence was unsafe? Lord, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to your outrageous love. That we might grow in faith, that we might grow in gratitude, that we might grow in change. That we might taste more of this life you've made available to us. Friends, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion.